Good morning, Green Street, once again. Oh, man, I tell you what, my heart is full this morning. Um, oh, it's not every day a man gets to baptize his son, and it's not every day that a man has to say goodbye to people he loves. And uh, we love you. We love you dearly. Um, I could stand up here the rest of the afternoon and uh, just list the things I'm thankful for and run out of time and never get to the text and Brandon would fire me. So, um, uh, so we won't do that. But I do just want to say a few things. Um, so thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing for us. It is a rare privilege in, in the church historical and the church global that a man can provide for his family while pursuing the calling to be a pastor. And I don't take that lightly, so thank you for providing for us. Thank you for letting me learn. Since I was 19 years old, I felt called to be a lead pastor and that there was a time of preparation and didn't know how long that time would be. And I am so grateful that the Lord chose to let part of that season be here at Green Street Baptist Church for learning here as a member of the staff, the experiences and being allowed to pursue education while I'm serving here is just something I can never repay you for. So thank you. And also, thank you so much, especially a, a handful of you who particularly poured into the life of Jack and helped nurture his heart to receive the gospel. And so I'm so glad that we were able to share that, uh, his baptism, to share his baptism with you before we head west to Texas. And we're just so grateful for that opportunity. Um, I want to share a video with you from the day after Jack decided to follow Jesus. This was August 26th, and uh, Jack didn't know that we were watching, but Carmen caught this on the video monitor. I've had uh, the privilege of an up-close view the past few months of a child's faith. And you know, Jesus commanded us to have faith like a child. Oftentimes, we try to tell kids to have a grown-up faith, and Jesus is telling us grown-ups to have a childlike faith. And um, what I've realized, a child doesn't know much theology. They don't know all the rules about going to church, that you're not even supposed to run in the church building. Uh, they may not even be able to pronounce the books of the Bible, but when a child loves Jesus, they want to follow him. And so a child's faith helps us see what is really at the foundation of our faith, what's really at the foundation of it all. And that's a pure and simple devotion to Jesus himself. And with my final message to you as a member of this pastoral staff, I want to exhort you to be a devoted church. In praying over what to preach this morning, that's where I landed. The Lord put the word devoted on my heart. He led me to a passage in Acts chapter 2. 
So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47 this morning. Now, in purely human standards, the, uh, the little ragtag band of followers Jesus left behind had no chance of expanding the message of Jesus into a movement that would take over the world. They had very little finances. None of them were qualified to lead a religious movement. Acts tells us there were about 120 of them. And, and, and yet you get a few chapters into Acts and that 120 has become several thousand with countless more being added day by day. And what started in Jerusalem there is already spreading all throughout the Roman empire. So what happened? What, what enabled this uh, group to be the leaders and stewards of a revival like nothing the world had ever seen before? I mean, it's really the first revival, so I don't know if it's appropriate to call it a revival. Maybe we just call it a, a revival. I don't know. It's, it's the first big move of God to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so to begin with, what happened was that Jesus made good on a promise that he'd made back in John 14. Before he died on the cross, he told them that he was about to leave the world, but then but he said it was a good thing because when he did, he would send his Holy Spirit. And so instead of Jesus Christ beside them, it would be the Holy Spirit inside them. And because of this new reality, Jesus said, he said, listen, you're going to do even greater works than the things I did. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is what happened. And our passage for today tells us something else that happened that made them able to take this message into a global movement. When the, when the Holy Spirit showed up in their lives, he made them a devoted church. The church God uses for revival is a devoted church. So if you're able this morning, I would ask you to stand together in honor of God's word as we read Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Now use your word to accomplish your purpose for this text in our lives today. Use it to make us a devoted church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This passage comes right on the heels of Luke's account of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, that's when the 120 disciples were huddled in an upstairs room and all of a sudden, a sound like a rushing wind filled the room, and the Holy Spirit came, filled them, and they started speaking different languages. 
people from many different countries were in Jerusalem at this time for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And all of a sudden, these people heard an uproar, uh, but through the noise, they each could hear something familiar. They heard their own native language, uh, words that they recognized. And so they go see what's up. And when the crowd gathers, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people that day put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah right then and right there. And so that detailed account of that story ends in verse 41, and in verse 42, it's like Luke uh, dials the camera lens back to give us a zoomed-out picture, and then verses 42 through 47 summarize what it was like in the first days and weeks and months of the early church's existence. And if you want to know uh, what they were all about, they were a devoted church. And they were devoted particularly to doing four, four main things. Luke says first they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Who were the apostles? They were Jesus' core group. That group of 12, which became 11 when Judas did his whole betrayal thing, uh, but they would replace him. And then Paul would also become known as a disciple by merit of his experience with Jesus on the Damascus road. And these guys, these apostles, they had a special authority to lead the church as a representative of Jesus in a special way. And nobody who came after them would have that same kind of authority. Their role was to make sure that Jesus' teachings were the authority in the church. And they did that by teaching people what Jesus had taught, him, uh, taught them himself. And, and in that process, through that process, through their writings, the Holy Spirit inspired some of their writings to preserve Jesus' teachings for the church throughout the rest of time. And that's where we get the New Testament. So after the apostles died, they did not pass their unique authority to another group of people. No, they left the completed scriptures, the completed Bible as the standing authority of the church. And today we follow Jesus' teachings. We devote ourselves to uh, Jesus' teachings by reading and obeying the Bible. And so today, if we want to do the same thing that this church did, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings by being devoted to the Bible. And not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Most of what the apostles did, uh, it involved interpreting the Old Testament in light of Jesus because that's the example they had seen in Jesus himself. He interpreted and taught the Jewish scriptures and showed himself to be the fulfillment of everything that God had done in them up to that point. And actually 33%, one third of the New Testament, at least that much, involves citations or references to the Old Testament. And so if anybody tells them that, tell, tries to tell you that you don't need the Old Testament for your Christian faith, here's a fancy Greek word you can tell them, baloney. We need the whole Bible. Next, the early church was devoted to the fellowship. And don't miss the definite article here. So Luke didn't just write they were devoted to fellowship or to fellowshipping. He wrote they were devoted to the fellowship because he wants to make a point. It is true that they were devoted to fellowship in the sense that they were fellowshipping. They were spending time together, sharing life together. They were doing fellowship as a verb. 
But he could have said that without attaching the to the front of the word. And so the point he's making is that they were fellowshipping with one another. They were devoted to spending time with one another because they were actually devoted to one another. They were devoted to the fellowship of believers. And so a question this morning that we have to address is, is are we devoted to the fellowship? Now, experts say that most people today, if they go to church two times per month, consider themselves active in church. Y'all, that's not active. I mean, 50%, that's 50% most of the time and less than 50% in, in, in months with five Sundays. You know, that's, that's a failing grade. And there are two ways this past year. I mean, we've had, I mean, going to church has not been easy or normal this, in this past year. And there are two ways that, that churchgoers have felt about this past year and what it has done to our ability to physically attend church. Either on the one hand, you have viewed it as a catastrophe. Maybe you're at home today watching, and, or you're here with a double-layered mask on up in the corner because you have a legitimate health concerns and it is dangerous for you to be around people in large groups. And for you, it is a cat catastrophe because there are a few things worse in your mind than being cut off from the fellowship of believers. You are devoted to the fellowship. Or you may be in, an, in another camp. You may talk like it's a catastrophe, but for you, there's no legitimate health concern to be at home right now, but you're there in your flannel PJ pants and it's not a catastrophe, it's just convenient. And when the air clears and COVID is, is a thing of the past, you'll probably stay right there at home in your PJs. But don't think that your faith will not suffer. When you take a log and pull it away from the fire, what happens to it? It goes out. In the same way, when Christians fall away from the, their, the church, their faith grows cold because Jesus designed us to be devoted to the fellowship. Amen. Now, next, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, and that is exactly what it sounds like, but I think there's a little bit of a double meaning there. So in one sense, it means they ate together. And all the Baptists said, amen. They enjoyed each other's presence through table fellowship. And in another sense, it also means that they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, just like Jesus commanded. Now, in the early church, they usually combined the two into one big shindig. They called an agape feast or a love feast. They shared a meal together and they capped it off by taking communion. Now, I'm not saying that you have to take communion after every meal you share with believers, uh, but let's make sure, though, that when we, when we sit down and have table fellowship with other believers, maybe even this afternoon, that we see it as more than just dinner with friends. Now, the Holy Spirit is in us, and when we gather in Jesus' name, he is there among us. And so, as a good Baptist, I'm saying we need to obey Luke here and be devoted to breaking bread together in Jesus' name by taking the Lord's Supper and by enjoying meals together to the glory of God. Now, fourth, it says they were devoted to the prayers. And here again, don't overlook that definite article. Luke didn't just say prayers, he said the prayers, which I take to mean that he understood prayer as an essential fixture in the local church. Like it's the prayers that has an official title. It was just as important a part of what they did as singing or preaching of the word. And it wasn't just something they did to transition or to close off a service in a non-awkward way. They were devoted to prayers. And for every revival in the history of the church, devotion to prayer is the common theme. And just one example is Charles Spurgeon. You probably have heard of him. 
And the Lord used him to change countless lives in London and all throughout England, really all throughout the world. And he had something in his church that he called the boiler room. And it was literally a room full of several hundred people at times who were praying before and during and after his services as he preached for the Lord to move. That's why I really love what Wednesday nights has become here at Green Street. It's a prayer meeting. And what, what do we do there? We pray. You know, a lot of times prayer meetings, you talk a lot and pray a little, or you know, we pray. Prayer is not just, it doesn't just fuel the ministry, it is the ministry. And if we want to see God work like he did through the early church, we need to, vote, to be devoted to prayer and to these other things that Luke mentions here. Uh, they've been called the disciplines of grace before, if you like. And the idea is that they are things that God has given us through which we encounter his presence and his grace and invite his power into our lives. But you may be sitting there thinking, though, I do these things. I, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, but, I, but I'm not seeing much power. I don't really see a revival around me. And, and it could be that it's just God's timing. God sends revival in his own way, and he's a sovereign being. He's not, he's not a genie in a bottle if we do the right things. He just, no, he's sovereign. So it could be his timing. Or, or though... We do need to ask if it's a problem of devotion because disciplines without devotion are devoid of divine power. Now, it's easy for us to approach spiritual disciplines like pills we take in the morning, you swallow it down with a full glass of water, and to forget about it and watch the magic happen. Now, now the, the early church was devoted to these disciplines and God used them to fuel a revival, but they didn't work like an easy recipe for revival or a four-step do-it-yourself process for manufacturing a work of God. No, God is sovereign and he does as he pleases. And it is his good pleasure to bring revival to a church. It pleases him to see people repent and believe the gospel. It pleases him to see people grow in their faith. And so why doesn't he just send a revival to every church? Why are the vast majority of churches stagnant or declining? And I believe it's because when God looks up and down the world for a church where he can send a revival, it's like he's looking at an empty pantry. He's looking for devotion. He's looking for devoted hearts, and I'm not sure that he sees enough devotion in our hearts. Because he can see past our religious activities. He can see when, when I'm going through the motions, when I'm doing the disciplines of grace just to comfort myself and make myself feel good about how righteous and religious I am. But what God wants to see is people who do the disciplines of grace because they're desperate for God because they want to see him and know him and experience his power more deeply and they're just desperate for his presence. That's what he wants to see and he wants to see that because devotion to God is the foundation of revival. He will not bring revival to a less than devoted church because half-hearted devotion simply cannot handle the power of a divine work of God. Just like when Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and, and encountered God face to face, the rest of the people could not approach the mountain without dying. And why is that? I believe it probably boils down to the fact that Moses was truly devoted and they were not. They didn't have a foundation of devotion in their hearts that could handle the power of God. God doesn't send revival to us, I'm afraid, because, and this is speaking to me, because it would be like building a brick house on a foundation of Plato. 
Only a foundation of intense devotion to God will handle the weight of a divine work of God. Now, now it's, not as, it's not as though these disciplines are unimportant, so don't misunderstand that. Luke records both. The early church was devoted, and they were devoted to doing certain things in their pursuit of God. So our devotion needs a direction. And so when we say, I'm devoting my life to Jesus, God says, okay, well, here's what you do if you want to experience my presence and my power. And he gives us those disciplines. And so if devotion is the foundation of revival, then the disciplines of grace are the fuel of revival. Now, to start a fire, you get some newspaper, some itty-bitty pieces of wood for kindling, and you strike a match and you get a good blaze going. But if you don't add more fuel, that blaze will quickly burn out. And no matter how big you get that blaze, if you don't keep on adding fuel, it will eventually die down to nothing but coals and fizzle out to nothing but ash. Now, for some of you, you you've been there before. You've had, had that season where you were like a blazing fire. Your heart was on fire for the Lord. But if we're honest, we're like, I, don't, I can't remember how long it's been. It's been so long. I don't know if I can remember what it's like to be on fire for the Lord. And maybe what's happened there, that's happened to me, is, is maybe our devotion has gotten misdirected. Maybe we've gotten devoted to the disciplines themselves when the whole point of the disciplines is to help us encounter God and to know Him more deeply. And so if we want to spark our faith back to a blaze, we have to recapture a vision and a longing for God's glory, taste and see that He is good, and then keep on tasting and press into those devotions, not for, uh, not for the, themselves, but for the real purpose in, per, in pursuit of God Himself. Now, for others of you, your faith may be more like pouring lighter fluid on a fire. It blazes up for 30 seconds with some intense heat, then it dies back down to barely a flicker, and you repeat the process over and over and over again. It's a little bit of fun for a pyromaniac, uh, but you never get a real fire. And you heard a sermon, or you went to camp, or, and your heart was on fire for Jesus. But three days later, you're back to the same old, same old, buried in that same old sin crippled with guilt until your next shot in the arm of devotional lighter fluid. And it's because you never properly fueled your fire. Lighter fluid is awesome and a lot of fun if you're careful. But without the right fuel, it will not create a fire that can cook your food and keep you warm at night. So wherever you are on that spectrum, from burned coals to little blazes of glory, here are three pieces of advice. Number one, avoid the silver bullets. Two, start where you are. And three, keep pressing on. So avoid the silver bullets. Uh, silver bullets are a reference to werewolf folklore. I'm not into it a whole lot, but I've heard this. So um, apparently regular bullets will not cure, kill a werewolf, but sil silver bullets will do the trick. Don't speak from personal experience, but um, let's just roll with the analogy. So when people today describe something as a silver bullet, they, means it's, they mean it's something that we look to as a do-all, fix-everything, quick solution, like a magic pill you take, and it cures whatever ails you. Now, there are no silver bullets in the Christian life. We are blessed today to have so many resources that can help us. We have Christian radio and Bible apps and special devotionals and Christian books and conferences and on and on, and they can be helpful, but, but not as silver bullets. It's easy to think if I go to that conference or get my hands on that devotional or use this journaling method, it will fix my faith and, and make it like a blazing fire again. But those resources 
are only helpful insofar as they are seen as servants of what God has already given us as the right fuel for our faith. They can help us fan the flame, but they can't fuel the fire. And so avoid the silver bullet mentality and press deeper into the God-ordained disciplines of grace. Second, start where you are. So depending upon the size of a fire, you approach it differently, right? If it's just a little blaze, you, you, you carefully add tiny strips of wood, just gradually working up to bigger logs, or you'll smother it out. But if you've got a raging bonfire, you can add a whole tree and be just fine. So start where you are. Here's just a couple points, maybe helpful, been helpful for me. Um, If the disciplines are dry and you just don't feel your love for God, maybe incorporate some singing into your devotional time. Uh, Music is a gift from God that helped drive gospel truths into our hearts. And when I felt dry, sometimes I don't feel like reading my Bible. Man, just start with a song that has spoken to me in the past. And before I know it, I got tears in my eyes and I'm remembering how good God is. And I I can taste and see that he is good in his word again. Or maybe fasting is something that we need. Jesus commanded us to fast. And and so the disciplines of grace aren't just limited to those four things in Acts 2. The New Testament mentions mentions others, one of which is fasting. And, And so when we're stressed or we're overwhelmed, and it's been a stressful and overwhelming year, amen? We turn to different things to give us comfort. We binge watch TV or, or eat rich foods or scroll on social media. And in moderation, those things aren't bad, but when we try to use them to do what only God can do to comfort our souls, they're, they're like a bad drug. And so when we fast, we're saying no to certain things that we turn to so we can fill that void with the presence of God instead of whatever other narcotic we've been turning to. So third, keep pressing on. I wonder how often we've gotten up off of, our, off of our knees in prayer or how often we've cut the fast short or stopped the reading plan or stopped going to life group when we were right on the brink of a breakthrough. If we kept on with the devotion and kept on with the disciplines, the Spirit of God would have breathed life into the caverns of our souls once again, but we stopped short. And you may wonder, well, why does God not just show up like right when we open the Bible, right away? He's able to do it. I know his word's living. Why do I have to keep pressing on? And God can do anything, but we have to understand something. We have a lifetime of sin and a heart full of transgression, and it takes time for a patient and loving God to walk with us through those things and work through those things and work them out of us in such a way that will truly be for our good and for his glory. And also God is sovereign and he works according to his own timing. Adoniram Judson, you've probably heard us talk about him before. He was a missionary to Burma. He labored there for six years enduring untold, unimaginable heartache, burying his wife, burying children, being imprisoned six years before he saw the first convert. You can't tell me that that man and his family were not devoted. And his journals show us that he was disciplined, but God had his own timing. And by God's grace, a movement was started there that right now on our campus, when our ethnic congregations are here, our Chinmatu and Karin congregations, trace the ancestry of their faith back to Adoniram Judson. So untold thousands of Burmese people are in the kingdom of God because they kept pressing on. What if in year five, he said, enough is enough, I'm going home. So keep pressing on. If you don't feel like reading your Bible, read it anyway. 
you don't feel like going to church, read it and go, go anyway. You may be on the brink of a breakthrough. Now, all this talk about devotion and disciplines, it makes us wonder, well, where am I? In terms of my devotion, am I enough? Those of you who are probably really devoted are like, I'm not devoted enough. And those of you who aren't devoted are like, yeah, I'm good. So, so, so we need an analytical, we need something to help us diagnose where we stand in our devotion to see where, where we know, to, to know where to start and how to keep pressing on. And Luke gives us that in this text in verses 43 through 46. Now verse 42, and verse 47 are kind of like bookends on this passage. Verse 42, Luke tells us what the disciples are doing, that they devoted themselves to these things. And then verse 47, it's crystal clear that this is what God was doing. He was adding to their number day by day. But the in-between verses, it's a little less clear as to who's doing the actions. Are the Christians, are they doing this or is it God doing it through them? And the answer is yes, both. It's a beautiful picture of our responsibility and God's sovereignty. And these verses show us what it looks like when God shows up and does a work in a devoted church. And so we can hold these verses up like a mirror to our own lives to check our devotion and to check if God is at work in us. And so we're going to ask six questions like rapid fire and see where we stand. So imagine these six questions, each of them like a different dial on your dashboard. You looked at your dashboard this morning, one's for fuel, one's for speedometer. These questions are like six different dials that are going to show our devotion and show the degree to which God is working among us. So first question, is there an inexplicable work of God? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, this sermon is not the place to dive into a discourse on spiritual gifts. Uh, there simply isn't time. But the point Luke wants us to see today is that things were happening that could only be chalked up to the work of God and that those things brought awe and wonder, fear even, into the soul of every believer. So are there things happening among us and in our lives where all we can do is stand back and say, glory to God. Glory to God. He and he alone could bring about this work. A.W. Tozer diagnosed well the condition of the church today. He said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. And then he contrasted that with the early church. He said, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. So is there an inexplicable work of God among us? Next, is there an incomprehensible unity? Verse 44 says, all who believed were together. So stop right there for a moment. What a statement. They were together. Literally, they were spending time together because they were fellowshipping, right? But on a deeper theological and spiritual level, they were there because regardless of the, their background or where they came from or the language they spoke or their home country, they were united as one. The gospel was bringing these people together. So yes, at this point, all these people were Jewish, but they, were, they had been spread out. But you can't read Acts 2 and, and not catch the diversity in this picture. God had to supernaturally empower the apostles to speak different languages to reach them all. 
And you can't read Acts very much further without realizing that this kingdom would soon expand to also to include Gentiles and all the people from every tribe and tongue and nature. And they were, coming to, they were coming together for the sake of one thing and one thing alone. They were coming together for their gospel. Their unity makes no sense to an outside world. So among us, is there an incomprehensible unity that does not make sense? Or would we be hanging out with one another anyways, even if we didn't share the gospel? There's nothing wrong with sharing Christian relationships with, with people who are like us. But if that's all we have, then maybe God's not at work. Is there an incomprehensible unity? Next question. Is there an irrational generosity? Verse 44. They were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Irrational generosity, generosity that makes no rational sense from a world's standard and world's view of economy and economics. And so I don't have to talk long on this one because Green Street, you excel on this point. And when you look at our per capita giving and compared to other churches, it's, it's phenomenal. It is truly, in a lot of ways, an irrational generosity. Uh, and our generosity, we have to keep going in that and pressing deeper into that as individuals because our generosity is one of the biggest things that will make the unbelieving, unbelieving world scratch their heads and wonder what's different about us. I mean, people look in and they think 10%, like you really give 10% of your income. It's like, yeah, sometimes more. How do you make it on 90%? Like I can barely feed my kids and save for retirement on 100%. But what is irrational to the unbelieving world is perfectly rational when you know the God of the Bible. And if you know him, you know he's sovereign, the sovereign ruler of the universe, and that his sovereignty extends even over your personal finances. And you know that he loves a cheerful giver, and he commands to us to give generously, and that you can't outgive God. And so we have to look into our lives and say, is there an irrational generosity? If not, it's a sign that maybe our devotion is lacking and therefore God is not working in our lives. Now, next question. Is there an insistent desire to be together? Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And we've already plowed deeply on this point, so I'll just put it bluntly and move on. If there is no desire to be with the people of God, then quite possibly you do not belong to the people of God. If you can't be here right now, we understand. Uh, but, but if you can't be here, but your long, heart longs for the day when you can, then let this be assuring to you. That's a, sign you're a, that's a sign that you're a child of God. But if you, if you can be here and you're not, or even if you are here, but you're counting the minutes until chips and salsa, then you've got some heart searching to do. Next and final question. Is there an immovable love for God and for all people? The first part of verse 47 says this. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Praise for God is an overflow of love for him in our hearts. And so we often associate praise with music. And yes, that's one way that we express our love for God. Uh, but praise also involves more than singing. It involves normal, non-musical words. Just when we're talking to people and, and things we talk about, we praise things all the time. And it's because we're wired to worship. I mean, since last Sunday, you've probably been saying, man, Tom Brady is the goat, the greatest of all time. Or man, these waffle fries are the best thing ever. Or let me 
tell you about my grandkids. You know, we praise things all the time. And there's nothing wrong with bragging when giving credit where credit is due. You know, I'm guilty of talking way too much about my kids and my favorite coffee roaster and my Georgia Bulldogs, even though they break my heart, you know. But we need to be concerned if for all the praising we do in our everyday talk, if, if little to none of that praising involves bragging on what God has done. A deep and movable love for God ought to drive praise for God on our lips. Now, the early church also had an immovable love for all people. And we already talked about how they loved one another, but they also loved those who were not yet part of their number. And how do we know this? We know this because they had favor with all the people, meaning all the people there in Jerusalem, not just those who had decided to follow Jesus the Messiah. And so favor with people... Having favor with somebody means they respect you and see you in a favorable light. It does not mean that they agree with you. In fact, they should know that you hold different beliefs. And so if you get along with non-believers, but they don't know that you're a Christian, then that's not really having favor with them. It is favor, however, when they still like you and want to be around you, even though they know you hold different beliefs. So do the non-believers in your life respect you because you are respectful of them and because you live a respectable life. That's what it means to have favor with all the people. And we can't miss the echo here. Luke, the author of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And listen to what he says in Luke 2.52 about Jesus in his childhood. He said that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How much does that sound? Luke, Luke, Luke sound alike. Luke was a physician, and this was no mistake. He was intentionally showing us what happens in a church when Jesus shows up, a church where Jesus is at work. That church reflects Jesus' nature, and one of those ways is that they have an immovable love for God and for people that leads to praise for God and favor with all people. So is there a love for God and a love for people in our church and in our lives? So there we have it, six questions, six dials on the dashboard. And there's one final test, one final truth in this text that ultimately tells us if we are a devoted church that God is working through. And so our passage ends with this. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see is this, that the Lord adds to the number of a devoted church. I'll even add the Lord only adds to the number of a devoted church. So at the end of the day, when we step back, are we seeing people respond to the gospel, get baptized, and become active contributors to the local church as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ? People who don't even come from Christian backgrounds, a work that only God could do, because we can fake a whole lot. We can add people to our number in a lot of different ways by good marketing techniques or preaching half-truths and softening the, the harshness of the gospel. We can add to the church in a whole lot of ways in this culture, but we can't fake death-to-life transformation. 
We can't fake it when somebody goes from being a rebel of God and hating God and all of a sudden going to loving God. And that's where we just stand back and say, the Lord is adding to our number. Glory to him for what he has done. So that will be the final test of us being a devoted church as if we see a day where phones of pastors and different people are blowing up and saying, hey, I just baptized this person in my swimming pool. Hey, I just led this co-worker to faith, and it's just something that we can't even hardly keep up with because God is doing it. And y'all, I've never seen that. I've seen God work, and I've seen churches steadily grow, and there's nothing wrong with steady growth. But y'all, when God breaks in, I believe he's able to do exactly what he did in the book of Acts. And I want to see it. I want to see revival. So, so what do we do? Oh, just being real, y'all, I'm going to be a senior pastor my first senior pastorate. In a lot of ways, I'm scared to death because it's easy to put pressure on myself. Like, I don't know what kind of leader I'm going to be. Am I going to mess this place up? Am I going to... And when I get there and I turn my eyes to the Lord instead of to my own weakness, it's like he says, my child, it's not up to you. Devote yourself to me. Shepherd your people to be devoted to me. Shepherd your people to seek my power in prayer. Plead for the anointing of my Holy Spirit, and then I'll break through, and I'll do the work, and you won't get any of the glory for it. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Every one of them are just renting these pews. God alone does the work of revival. So what do we do? All we can do is ready ourselves by laying a foundation of devotion, by becoming devoted Christians who come together to make a devoted church. And so our application today is check our devotion. Look inside our lives and see, are we devoted? Am I devoted? Because the church's greatest need today is people who know God and who long to know him more. People who are devoted to knowing God experientially and not just intellectually. You know, a lot of us who call ourselves Christians and fill churches, um, we, we, we know the facts about God, we know Him intellectually. We could win Bible drills because we've been in this culture for so long, but we have to take a deep look in our lives and say, have I really experienced God? And, and, and if there's doubt in your mind on that, then you probably haven't because God, like with a word, the, 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 the sun burns at 9,941 degrees Fahrenheit. And with a word, he spoke billions upon billions of those things into existence. And if you encounter that God in a real way, if you experience him, then you will be different and you will know it. Yes, it may have been a long time since your faith burned hot, but you will know that you have known God. If you get hit by a Mack truck, People are going to tell a difference. And God is infinitely more powerful than a Mack truck. And so what makes us think that we can encounter God and not be unchanged? Now, we have to have the heart of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, he said this. He, he listed all of his accolades. He said, y'all, I, I was born with, into an amazing Jewish family. Here's all the rights and privileges I was born with. And then here's all the things that I did in my life to earn it. And then this is what he says. He says, but I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And get this, why? Why did he count all that as loss? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What are you willing to count as loss for the sake of knowing God more deeply? Is there anything you are unwilling to count as loss for the sake of Christ? And if so, that's the very thing holding you back from a deep and pure devotion to Christ. And most likely that thing that you're unwilling to give is probably a good thing that's a gift from God and he wants you to enjoy it, but he does not want you to worship it or let it supplant him in your heart. Is it your family, your job, your wealth, your health? To count it as lost doesn't necessarily mean that you get rid of it or abandon it or neglect it. To count something is literally to consider it. It's about the way you think, the way you hold on to things into your mind, in your mind and your heart. So do you cling to that thing more tightly than you cling to Jesus? Just speaking real here for a minute, and um, I, I know uh, a lot of Shiloh Terrace is probably listening or going to listen to this, and um, just over the past couple of months, as we've wrestled through this call, y'all, <laughs> um, I've always said that I have a blank check, like, Lord, we'll go anywhere, do anything, and, and God's made me, uh, you know, Texas is a wonderful place. It's an awesome place. It's a beautiful congregation. I didn't realize how bad I wanted to live close to home. Now, where I grew up, they filmed the Hallmark movies there, and we're from my parents' house. You can see like a 300-degree view of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, and I want just to build a house right there and sip coffee and look at those mountains. And my grandma is one of my best friends in the world, and I don't, don't know how many years she has left. I want to be able to go to her house and sit on her couch and, and let her make me a grilled cheese like I'm a 10-year-old, you know, anytime I want to. But I want to know Jesus more. I want to obey him. I've tried every way in the world to get out of it, and um, it just makes the call more clear, so clear. And I had a thought, um, I thought clarity would make things easy, you know? Like, we love y'all. We don't want to leave you guys either. Um, I said, Lord, I, I prayed for clarity. It's in my Bible. Like, I prayed for clarity on this. Like, if you want us to go to Texas, make it so clear that we can't miss it. And I thought that would make it easy. But then he showed me that Jesus Christ, the night before he was betrayed and arrested, had a crystal clear picture of what God was asking him to do. And it didn't make it easy. Also, I... I'm standing up here and I realize many people have given infinitely, if, a lot of men and women have given infinitely far more than what he's asking us to give. And I'm just a big baby that wants to live close to his mama and daddy and grandma. <laughs> but I say that just so 
I can be real with you, so I can prompt you to ask, what in your life are you clinging to that Jesus wants you to count as loss for the sake of knowing him and obeying him more deeply? And if you're listening to this here in this building or on live stream and you've never devoted your life to Jesus, you're holding on to something, your idea of freedom, your idea of goodness, your idea, devote your life to Jesus today. If you think you're gonna lose anything by saying yes to Jesus and that's a lie straight from Satan and you need to say no to that lie and say yes to him today. I've already ran over time. So let me pray. I'm gonna pray for you, you pray for me, you pray for this new wonderful church out in Dallas, Texas. Pray that God would spark revival there and I will pray that God would spark revival here. Pray that I would be devoted, pray that they would be devoted and pray above all that the Spirit of God would anoint, would anoint my ministry, would anoint the staff there, would anoint the leaders there, would anoint the people in that church just to take the gospel and that we could just stand back and say glory to God, look what he has done. I'll be praying the exact same thing for you.